0: Welcome back to our Homeless Health series of the London Health podcast, where we look at challenges facing homeless health in London. I'm Michael Bugle, Communications Lead with the Homeless Health Programme here at the Healthy London Partnership. On today's episode, we're talking about our recent snapshot audit on the health, housing and social care needs of people experiencing homelessness in London. I'll be speaking with one of the report authors, Dr Caroline Schulman, Clinical Lead at Healthy London Partnership as well as Emma Zeus, Public Health Consultant with the Greater London Authority. They'll be here to contextualize some of the findings and discuss what can be done to help improve the current situation in London. As a reminder, uh, you can find this podcast in all the usual places, including on SoundCloud. So be sure to subscribe or follow us on social media to stay up to date on all of the latest episodes. But first I'm going to talk to David Woodley from Grandswell. David is a care navigator with the charity. David, Welcome back. I know you've joined us before in the podcast, but would you mind reintroducing yourself and telling us a little bit about your role?
1: Hi, Michael. Uh, thanks for having me again. Um, yeah, my role at Groundswells. So I am a care navigator. I am based at two specialist homeless GP practices in Westminster, what are Great Chapel Street Medical Centre and the Dr. Heath practice. So they're specialised that they only work uh, with patients who are rough sleeping within Westminster. Um, and as their care navigator, I have a caseload of about 30 people uh, that are registered with two practices that need a little bit more support to engage around their health. Uh, that could be a, a multiple different reasons, uh, challenges that they face with engaging with primary care and secondary care. Um, more if they are rough sleeping, for example, uh, more uh, immediate needs around, for instance, cost of travel, things like that, reminders. Um, so, yeah, I have a caseload and also have some health beds in Westminster where, uh, as part of the Integrated Care, Care Network team, what is part of both the surgeries, I can uh, support people off the streets into temporary health beds uh, to address their health needs as well. And the idea is that they would come off the streets and work with us in a hostile environment rather than going into hospital um, and having uh, kind of acute admissions. Um, a and E attendances, ambulance call outs. So the idea is we have quite an in- intensive wraparound support for somebody uh, that comes off the streets into one of our health beds. Um, but like I said, I also have a caseload of people that may be in accommodation or in the rough sleeping pathway, uh, and I would work with that caseload uh, around getting to support uh, around their health. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's that's kind. Of, it's a very varied role. Um, <laughs> lots of different environments.
2: Yeah. And yeah, as mentioned on today's episode, we're we're taking a look at the recent snapshot audit um, where we looked at inpatients experiencing homelessness and their needs uh, in terms of health, housing, and social care. Mm. So, um, I suppose from your experience um, as a care navigator, could you describe some of the experiences your clients have had while uh, being admitted to hospital?
1: Yeah. Yeah, sure. So I think a lot of the time when my clients are admitted to hospital, they're in a crisis. Um, that a lot has gone wrong. They have a lot of uh, tri morbidity. Um, that for whatever reason, then maybe they haven't been able to engage with primary care. That could be down to mental health or addictions. Um, so unfortunately, it becomes a crisis and they get admitted to hospital. Um, for me, sometimes that can be an opportunity to support someone then um, and advocate for some of say investigations for example we haven't been able to do when they've been in the community so it can be a kind of call of arms to me um but obviously we want to avoid people having uh, acute admissions um obviously going into crisis but it is something that obviously happens quite a lot and so like i said i could use it as an opportunity but i think for a lot of the clients that i work with you can imagine the anxieties and stresses of that happening um For, again, a lot of different reasons. A lot of clients that I've worked with have dependencies, drugs or alcohol. And I think that going into, as an inpatient, that is a huge stress for them. Are they going to be prescribed the medication maybe that they get in the community at the right dosage, for example? Um, Is that going to carry on? Are they going to feel uncomfortable as an inpatient uh, for that reason? Uh, They've uh, often had trauma in the past. So, even a hospital environment can feel quite, um, uh, quite. I can't think of the right term, um, uh, a kind of a different environment, let's say. So being in, within a hospital and then being kind of in a uh, homeless setting or rough sleeping, there can, there's a lot going on with the hospital environment, a lot of noise. Um, things are not, they use a lot of questions, a lot of them um, asking for their story um, of their situation, repeating that often to many different professionals. So I think it could be quite intrusive for them. Um, so I think what's, what's difficult as well is is not knowing, if you're, if you're in hospital, you're having a kind of acute admission and you're worried about your health, you also have the a worried anxieties, how are you going to recover once you're discharged? Um, for you and I, we'd probably go home and have family, friends to kind of support us and say, look after us. If you were previously rough sleeping before admission, if you were to go say back to the streets, how are you going to physically recover? But um there are some uh, offers of step down provision now, but even that's quite difficult um for our for our clients to go into that setting because it's it can be the unknown for them. Um mm. and it just adds to the anxiety and the um around the whole situation of uh, being an impatient and being unwell.
2: Yeah. Um and it's is. As you said, there's, you know, quite a lot of um, complex cases in terms of yeah. some of the care needs that, um, that people have. Um, and you mentioned step-down care. And I just wondered um, if, yeah, if you could talk a little bit about, you know, any experiences your clients have had in, in I suppose, accessing that care or if there's been maybe challenges yeah. in accessing that care for whatever reason.
1: There are a lot of challenges, a lot of challenges for all services that support uh, our rough sleeping client group, um, from the inclusion health teams to discharge nurses to care navigators to GP. I think often when our clients are admitted, like I said, often in crisis, it's uh, their needs change often overnight. Uh, So some of them things could be mobility. That's a huge one. So um, people can uh, be admitted and unfortunately lose limbs, um, or they've had an accident, uh, maybe a road traffic accident, and their mobility has drastically changed. Uh, so their care needs and their ability to care for themselves change very quickly. And we, we're all aware of the pressures that there are on hospital beds and discharging, but we can have someone who often can't go back to the setting that they were in before Usually, it's because of uh, stairs, um, very little level access across the borough. So, for example, someone goes in and comes out, it could be on crutches, a Zimmer frame, or wheelchair. Um, it's just they're not, not appropriate to go back to the setting that they're in. And again, I spoke about the lack of beds within the hospital setting, there's also a lack of accommodation options. Uh, that's not just within the rough sleeping pathway. That's just in general, in London, in society, in England, there really is a lack of uh, housing available. Um, what then puts the pressure back onto the hospital, puts the pressure on um, everybody's support in the client group. Um, but there are a number of different reasons why someone can go in and, and come out with a different, different needs, let's say, to when they go in. And that dramatic change can be very difficult to have a safe planned discharge. So another example is around uh, addiction. So often around alcohol, for example, someone could go into hospital, they can be detoxed on the ward um, and then they're fully detoxed and then they can't go back to the environment they go in, particularly in the rough sleeping pathway. Um, there's very few, as we call kind of dry hostels, it's quite a number term, but a dry hostel, most of the hostels are, there. there's a lot of alcohol use um, within them. And then to discharge somebody who has maybe addressed their alcohol works with the maybe alcohol li- li- liaison team, they maybe been admitted for, I mean, it could be a matter of weeks, it could be months. And then to discharge them back to that setting where other people are not in the same places in their recovery as, as that person is, is being discharged, that can be very, very difficult. So then you're starting to have the conversation around, are there any other options for the person to go back to? Um, a lot of assessments around care around uh, again mobility um uh, there's a lot to consider uh, the area that the person's going to are they do they have the so, same um social networks that they did if they were to move out of borough um there really is a lot to consider and i think it obviously we're all pushing and we're advocating for our, uh, the patients to go back to the right setting but unfortunately a lot of the time it's extremely difficult to find the right setting for somebody uh, post-discharge. But we mentioned the step-down beds. Um, so the step-down beds in Westminster are in a hostel environment. The hostel environment, are not; they're not care settings, although we do a lot of in-reach into the hostels and there's a lot more nurse provision at the moment, GPs going in, um, even care being given, they're not care environments. Um, very few have level access. Um, and again, as I said, in terms of size of issues, unfortunately there is a lot Within the rusty pathway so then if you look at other pathways for example private rental sector um to get accommodation say within westminster if you're on benefits um very rarely the benefits will cover accommodation in westminster because it's so expensive so then you'd be looking a kind of out borough but then if you were to do that the, the person would probably lose a lot of their support network or it would be professionals or or friendship groups, or uh, knowing the uh, areas, so that has to be taken into consideration as well. Will the person, for example, relapse? Will they, um, will they abandon accommodation and come back to Westminster and say rough sleep? Um, so there is a really a lot to consider, and it's everyone's under a lot of pressure again, in hospitals and discharges, and making sure they're safe. Um, so again, an inclusion health team, there's a lot of advocating, but we're all aware of the challenges that we all face. So it is very difficult.
2: Yeah. Yeah, I can. I can imagine. It sounds like there's a, there's a lot of complex uh, cases requiring complex solutions. Um, I wonder, just finally, um, you know, from your perspective, what could help the situation, or, or are there any kind of solutions that you and your team see um, that could be, I suppose, implemented to help with, um, you know, dealing with this complex complex situation?
1: Yeah. Um... <laughs> That 's a big question, um, but one I think things can be done I think um, we are we all work very closely together between primary care and the hospitals the the inclusion health teams at the hospital we're very very fortunate in Westminster that most of the hospitals have inclusion health teams they are invaluable to us in terms of advocating safe discharges and being on site in the hospital I mean my role it's quite varied. I move around a lot. I'm in mean, hospital settings, hospital settings, outreach, to GP. I mean, it, like I said, I move around a lot Where the inclusion health team based in the hospital. Uh, if I was to go into a hospital and advocate, they may not take on what I'm saying about a client, say a discharged nurse where the inclusion health teams, they've got more weight, I think. They, they're more respected and they understand the clients in hospitals. We're very, very lucky in Westminster to have them uh, in most of the hospitals. And I think it's joint working is the biggest tool that we can have. So I think you asked earlier, and I didn't actually answer about why I think a Care Navigator is important. I spend all day, every day speaking to a multitude of different services and individuals. And again, I can be quite transient. I can move around quite a lot. And I'm given the autonomy to do that, um, where, again, if you're an inclusion health team, you're based at a hospital. If you're a hostel worker, you're based at the hostel. You don't have as much um, autonomy to move around and be quite flexible. So I think flexibility is a is a big one um, of how we can work together. It's all just about networking. It's all about uh, being in communication, all understanding. We're all we're all pulling in the same direction. We're all trying to achieve achieve the same thing and support our clients. We all have different stresses um, on our roles, um, and I think it's understanding that. Um, but I also think as uh, to improve it, I think it's including the patient. Often I will go to MDTs, discharge plannings, and I will say, what is it the patient wants? And often I'm met with silence that uh, often it's not appropriate for the person or the patient to be included in an MDT, but I would I would like that before the meeting that someone's had a conversation so and said, what would you like? What are your concerns in terms of discharge? Um, are you concerned about accommodation use on about how you're going to keep yourself safe? So forth, so forth. Often, when I go to meetings, that conversation has not been had. It's only been had on a professional level. So, I think that could be quite important in uh, kind of improving it. But I think the joint working is is a major thing. And I always say as well, I think that discharges should start, even if it's a long admission, should be looked out when someone has been admitted, not just when they're being discharged. Often, I'll get calls the day of discharge or the day before discharge, and they've been in, an inpatient for two or three weeks. And I think, why have you waited to last minute? Now, again, we all have different pressures. I'm sure that um, discharge nurses, the wards, the inclusion house, everyone is extremely busy. Um, but I think I would advocate to them and say, please, when someone first comes in, do the assessment when they first come in, do do the care act assessment, Do speak to the client, see what they want, um, and start planning it from day one rather than at the end. But that is blue sky. <laughs> I'm you know think I mean, that, I, that's in an ideal world again. Um, mm-hmm. I'm sure everyone would like to do that, but don't have the opportunity to do that. But I think I think my message would be the kind of, as a care navigator, it's a navigating, it's working with um, support workers, it's working with uh, adult social care, it's working with substance misuse services, It's working with all these services together. And I think, as my role as a navigator, that's what I'm able to do. And uh, I think, particularly in Westminster, we have a a very strong network between all the different services, and we're quite fortunate to have that.
0: I'll turn to you now, Emma. Before we build on what David has mentioned, could you just please reintroduce yourself and tell us about your role with the Greater London Authority Public Health Unit?
3: Of course, I'm very happy to join you today. So, I'm a public health consultant by training and I work in the what gets called the GLA group public health unit. And in practice, what that means is I provide public health advice to the work that the GLA does, particularly on housing. And as part of that work, I work very closely with our rough sleeping team Um, and the mayor has a commitment to that no one should be discharged from no one who's homeless should be discharged from hospital to the street. And part of my focus is to try and support work to deliver on that mayoral commitment.
0: Brilliant. Thank you, Emma. We're very familiar (laughs) with your amazing work. So thanks again for joining us today. I suppose then just from your perspective um, as a public health consultant, why is it so important to complete audits like this one? and um, why is this report significant?
3: So, um so this report was really important to undertake because homeless the homeless population as a group is not a group that we can pull out of routine hospital information. So I can't go to hospital. Colleagues who hold hospital data and say to them, how many people come into your hospital who are who are homeless and who are homeless at discharge, and how many people do you have in your hospital who are delayed there, and um, not because of their medical condition, but because they haven't got accommodation to go to, and who would otherwise be homeless. We don't hold that data, and we can't pull it in the in the way that would allow us to understand what that picture looks like for London and therefore what the accommodation health and care gap is that we need to address to ensure people can leave hospitals safely and that we can maximise the opportunity whilst people are in in hospital to to accommodate them suitably at the point of of discharge. So there's no way for us to do that. There was a little bit of research that had been done um, previously um, which was really helpful, but it only covered two of our acute trusts in London. So it was was too small a scale. So any time I was asked, you know, how big a problem is this? I really wouldn't be able to answer and nor would anyone else across London. The other reason it's an issue is because if we can't look at that level of need across London, because it's quite specialist, Uh, And you might need specialist accommodation and services to meet those needs. It's not something that you can only look at one hospital to get a picture of. You're going to need to look regionally um, to to get that kind of of flavour. And so this report is hugely important in terms of providing us for the first time with a comprehensive description of what is happening to this group. As they come into hospital or admitted to hospital and at the point of discharge. And what it really does is it flags up, um, it 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 describes to us the gaps and um in provision, particularly around health accommodation and care, and how we where where you can see people are delayed in hospital but are fit for discharge, you can see why they're not able to access what they need and therefore what
2: what is it that we're missing in our system to to meet
0: that need that's great insight thanks Emma so turning more towards this report in particular um, and before we speak with Caroline in a bit more detail I'd like to hear from you on just how you see this audit being best used going forward
3: There's a huge amount of learning from from the report, and some of it's quite practical about how hospital discharge teams communicate with um, housing um, leads um, and um, teams. But I think there's a strategic piece of work to take the the findings from the audit, which, of course, are are taken, they're a snapshot, so they're taken over a period of time, um, and to work out... What does that mean if we were to build up that picture over time? Um, what does it tell us about accommodation gaps? Um, and then that allows commissioners to get a sense of well, what sort of gaps, what numbers? Is it that we need a particular type of accommodation with specialist support, but actually that needs to be regional because no one local authority or one ICS needs one, it's so specialist, you need it at regional level, or in fact, do you need it at, at, a, at a smaller geography? So it's those types of questions that we're, that we're trying to use the data to understand better.
2: We're now going to hear from Dr Caroline Shulman, who's joined us before on the podcast, but before we uh, get into it, Uh, Caroline, would you be able to just reintroduce yourself?
4: Sure. Um, So I'm uh, Caroline Schulman. I'm a clinician and a researcher, um, have worked in homeless and inclusion health for around the last 13 or 14 years. So I'm a GP by background and have worked in uh, primary care, particularly in specialist homelessness practice for many years but also worked within a hospital homelessness team, a multidisciplinary homelessness team for many years. Um, I've also undertaken quite a lot of research, looking at the unmet needs and the gaps often within the community in hostels and done work around uh, palliative care, frailty and homelessness. But I'm delighted for the last couple of years, I've been working also um, across London, As clinical lead within the homeless health program at Healthy London Partnership, and that's what's really given this great opportunity for doing this work. I'm really delighted to be here again today. Thank you for inviting me, Michael.
2: No, thank you, Caroline. Okay, so I guess firstly, from your perspective, as you said, from an experience uh, as an experienced clinician and researcher, before we touch on the audit itself, I just wonder, could you tell us? um a little bit about what you've seen from your practice uh, and your experience in terms of the needs and the unmet needs uh within this population
4: yes sure so i think as we've heard in previous podcasts and earlier today even um people experiencing homelessness often have really very significant and complex health and care needs and also obviously accommodation needs um So a lot of their needs really stem from childhood or other complex trauma. And there can be a combination of mental health needs, often in association with addictions, and profound physical health problems. So we also know that these needs are frequently not met and often result in people dying uh, appallingly young, frequently from preventable causes. So from my work across primary care and hospital settings, it's been really clear that a hospital admission can serve as a vital opportunity to identify and address some of these complex needs. An admission can help prevent further deterioration of health and where there's adequate continued multidisciplinary support and appropriate accommodation, people can really be helped to turn their lives around to, and support that journey of recovery. But apparently, sadly, there, are, there are many gaps within the system and services and often inadequate options available to support this.
2: So, um, could you just give us an example of these gaps and how maybe they've impacted on people's lives?
4: Sure. I mean, working within a hospital team, I, saw so many gaps. I was so frustrated often by the lack of appropriate discharge options for people, knowing that the the lack of good options will result in them relapsing and deteriorating further. Um, I've seen a range, so many missed opportunities. And one example that really still haunts me was um, a a man who was in his forties, who'd been in intensive care for many, many weeks, And then came onto the ward he had uh, liver disease um, which was related to um, alcohol and he spent a very long time recovering in hospital and he recovered very well he didn't drink um, while in hospital and he was really keen to not return to drinking but um he had some long-term brain injury and um no rehab unit would take him because of that, and his only option was to be discharged back to a wet hostel due to lack of any other options. Not surprisingly, but tragically, he relapsed and died within six months following that discharge.
2: I can imagine that must have been um, yeah, really tragic, and that must have been really hard for the hostel staff too.
4: Oh, absolutely. Um, absolutely. Hostel staff are often left to support people with really very, very profound needs. So I've done quite a lot of work around hostels and people living in hostels, um, they're often there with really severe frailty, severe liver disease, and also dementia. Um, and these conditions often coming at a very, very young age. So we have people who are it, it, experiencing what we would normally associate with, with much older people, but they're experiencing them at a young age. And hostile staff are often being left to struggle to deal with people without the specialist support that they really need. So seeing the whole system, the whole system is really failing some, some of these people.
2: You mentioned that a mission is an opportunity um, to address these needs. Could you expand on that a little bit further?
4: Sure. So, though, I mean, a hospital admission really serves as a, as an important opportunity to help identify the needs and to start to address them. But also, it's really must be acknowledged that hospitals are under immense pressure, uh, and they're under huge pressure to discharge people who who don't any longer need an acute bed. But Despite this pressure, there's clearly a need for a safe discharge destination with appropriate wraparound support to aid recovery. And it's really essential people aren't discharged back to the street or to the inappropriate, unsafe accommodation, because as in in the gentleman I talked about, that's just going to result in either more unplanned admissions, further deterioration of health and early death. But in order to understand what long-term options may be appropriate or possible, there's often a need for further assessment as well, and a period of further recovery or rehabilitation that also could occur outside of hospital. So one way to address these needs is through improved access to intermediate care. But there is also a need really for more long term options as well. Now, NICE guidance is really clear that intermediate care should be provided for people experiencing homelessness who have healthcare needs, that cannot be managed in the community but do not need inpatient care. But they also make it very clear that there should be support options that are needs-based rather than age-based. And we really need to ensure that these options are there to ensure that people receive the care and support that they need in the community. So in some ways, that's what this audit was about. This audit was undertaken to help quantify some of these needs Identify the gaps between what's needed and what's available in practice, and um, ultimately to help commissioning decisions.
2: Okay, so yeah, it's clear from what you're saying, there's a real, I suppose, complexity of needs already within the population, um, coupled with, I suppose, a lack of choices and appropriate places for people to discharge you from hospital. Um, so. I guess before we touch on the findings and before we um look at what you know the audit uncovered could you just tell us a little bit about you know how you went about conducting the audit
4: um in this audit we looked at 19 hospitals across london uh three of which were mental health trusts and the others were acute hospital trusts now we undertook this in one week in february 2022 um we spoke to the um, hospital discharge teams, integrated discharge teams, or people um, working within um, homelessness teams within the hospital to get this information. And from this, we got a detailed investigation of the reason for admission, the healthcare, and support and accommodation needs as well of those people. There were 150 inpatients identified as being homeless at that one point in time, And we have detailed assessment of 86 people from the 15 acute hospitals and 18 people from the mental health beds.
2: Thanks, Caroline. Yeah. And and as Emma alluded to, there's, um, you know, a real breadth, I suppose, of um, people captured within within Trust in London. So, Caroline, could you please tell us what you found in the art then? What What stood out?
4: So we found the level of complexity of need was absolutely massive. So we had this detailed investigation of 86 people in the acute wards. And from that, 14 were admitted to intensive care, critically ill with sepsis or following collapse or cardiac arrests. So these 14 people were very close to have died on their admission by the time of their admission. There were others who'd experienced a range of very significant, often life-changing problems. So we had a number of people with strokes, multiple severe infections, people needing amputations, people with significant head injuries, and also a number of people with complicated diabetes. So, for example, diabetes is very common within the whole population, but in this population, it often is very, very complicated because... People can't manage their diabetes if they're on the street or in a hostel or in temporary accommodation. It can be very difficult to manage. And if people have insulin, again, there's no way to store it if you're on the street. Many people had suffered significant physical trauma as a result of accidents. There were some tragic suicide attempts and also assaults. And many people within the acute trust had underlying factors, including mental health problems or addictions. So we know that many of the conditions that people had were exacerbated by and deteriorated as a result of the homelessness, such as, for example, diabetes, but many of the others. There were also a number of people within the cohort who had restricted or uncertain immigration issues. And in some cases, they needed these resolving in order for them to access any appropriate ongoing support or accommodation. We also found that about Half of the people in the acute beds were already delayed discharges at the time of the audit. In other words, they would have already been discharged from hospital had they had an appropriate safe place to be discharged to. So we looked at reasons for these delays, and this included a range of things, including just waiting for the appropriate accommodation to be found, but some people needing specialist accommodation that simply wasn't available. For others, there were delays in getting assessments done or disputes about who was responsible, which local authority or department was responsible for providing their accommodation and support. What we clearly found was that there was no one size fits all. And what was very clear from this audit was that for long term recovery, person centred support is needed to address the physical, the mental, the psychological, emotional And addiction needs. We really need to recognise always that many people have experienced significant trauma during their lives and this can result in very high levels of stress and distress and can impact on how they develop trust in others and communicate and can itself become a barrier to people accessing the appropriate support that they need. We could do a whole podcast on trauma-informed approaches but above all, it's really important that our services are responsive and non-judgmental and that we listen and hear people and support them from, from where they are.
2: Absolutely. And I, I think we, we may well do a, a podcast on trauma-informed approaches at some point. Um, so it's great that you bring it up. So, Caroline, is it possible for you to just break down a little bit what types of support and accommodation um, is needed?
4: Yeah, sure. So for the majority of people in the audit, they had no place uh, to return to that was safe enough or appropriate. So some people would think, well, it's just about housing, isn't it? Homelessness is just a housing issue. But from our audit, there was only one person that was deemed to only need accommodation. When we looked at what was really needed for a safe or an optimal discharge, it was clear that there were many other significant gaps. And there was a need for a range of both intermediate and long-term accommodation solutions with care and support options for people with high, medium or low level of need. So breaking it down further, there were about 38 percent, i.e. nearly four in 10 people uh, within the audit who needed really high support accommodation for a safe discharge meaning they needed accommodation that had 24-hour staffing uh, with nursing staff on site. This was, for example, people with significant neurological or physical rehabilitation needs, but they wouldn't fit um, within mainstream services because there was also an association with either profound mental health difficulties or addiction. So this was a real specialist need that we found. The majority of these people were likely to only need this very high level of support for a matter of weeks or months um, as they were recovering from injury or illness. Um, and following that, they would probably be able to move into somewhere with less support. But nearly a third of this 38% were likely to need this support long term. So they would likely need the equivalent of a care home placement due to, for example, their advanced physical Um, health needs such as palliative care needs or dementia. Now, we know that currently there are really significant gaps in provision for people with high physical health needs in combination with mental health difficulties or addiction. And this audit has begun to quantify this level of need. There were also approximately a quarter of people whose needs were less than high support, but they still needed on-site staffing. Um, So these were people who had medium level support needs. For some of these people, this need was likely to be long term, such as people needing on-site specialists, um, mental health support, for example. While for others, this need was potentially for a shorter period of time, as they were likely to further recover from their condition. Um, So, for example, uh, they needed regular attention to leg ulcers um, or other illnesses and infections that would need ongoing recovery for a shortish period of time. These types of accommodation with list level of support are few and far between here in London as well. But obviously not everyone needs high or medium level support and the remaining around 38% had lower level support needs. Around a quarter of these needed somewhere for a few weeks to enable further assessments, such as around immigration support, getting adult social care or housing assessments completed before moving on to more permanent accommodation. But for the remainder, some form of long-term independent accommodation would likely have been appropriate, but with a need for long-term wraparound in-reach or community support. And by that we mean floating support or in-reach nursing support or Continued mental health or addiction support. So clearly, what we found is without choice and without this long-term support following discharge, people have a much lower chance of recovery, a higher risk of relapse, and or continued deterioration of their health, and a risk of further unplanned admissions to hospital and death. It's absolutely in no one's interest that the situation carries on. So we really do need a joined-up approach linking health housing, social care, both in hospital and in the community to address this these huge gaps. It's
2: it's clear um from what you're saying, the you know the answer doesn't lie in accommodation alone. And and as you said, um, you know, in order to prevent this cycle of deteriorating health and planned emissions and delayed discharge, as well as the early deaths that you talk about, there needs to be greater cooperation and 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 collaboration between health, housing and and social care. Um, So with that said, um, you know, the, the million dollar question, what can be done to help solve this? How do you suggest that decision makers listening to this use this report?
4: Sure. Well, this audit has really helped us to define that level of need. I think this is the largest audit that's ever been done looking at this population within a hospital. And it's helped us to define what types of accommodation and support needs are needed, not only for a safe discharge, but also what's needed to support that ongoing recovery. So we are using this audit, these numbers now, to model and quantify the level of these needs for the different forms of accommodation and support options across London. Something that's important is having these multidisciplinary teams encompassing inclusion, health expertise, and housing workers embedded within hospitals. Um, We've also found that having access to legal advice to support people with unsettled immigration status or other disputes are really important, again, for people who who are identified and coming to hospital. So these teams embedded within hospitals can really help to identify the needs and start to link people with appropriate services and start to address these unmet needs. But obviously working from the hospital alone doesn't work as we've talked about there's huge pressure on beds. So in order for this to work effectively, there need to be safe places of discharge where the immediate needs can be addressed, further assessments undertaken, but there also needs to be a range of long-term options offering that appropriate accommodation care and support as we've outlined here. So we're hoping that commissioners will read this report and take on board the findings of this report and also watch this space and see the modelling um, so we can really look and quantify what's needed across London in terms of the different sorts of support. Only by fixing the entire pathway can we address this really extreme vulnerability and develop some equity within our services to prevent the appalling premature mortality that people are currently experiencing.
2: Brilliant. Thank you, Caroline. So for any other recommendations on how you can help address these needs that Caroline has outlined, um, you can find a link uh, to the report in the description of this episode. Um, that's all we have time for on today's episode. So until next time, thank you to our guests, David Woodley, uh, Dr. Caroline Schulman and Emma Dezout. Mm-hmm.